This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hacia, whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is The Morning Shift. In just a bit, we'll remember writer Toni Morrison. There is no such thing as race. None. It's just a human race. But first, a recent WBEZ investigation found that about one in three CPS schools had at least one vacant regular or special education teaching position all year long. And the shortage doesn't hit all schools equally. The problem is most prevalent in schools that serve black students. So do Chicago schools have enough teachers? WBEZ education reporter Sarah Karp says her investigation began by looking up information about substitute teachers. Chicago Public Schools publishes something called an employee roster that lists like positions and vacancies. And I noticed that some of the schools that were requesting a lot of subs had teacher vacancies. And then in my mind, I started thinking about different Board of Education meetings when parents come and um, often give testimony. And sometimes they'll mention my, my child hasn't had a teacher for several months. And then just some conversations I'd had with people over the years that, oh, sometimes my kid doesn't have a teacher for you know three months, six months. And so I, I just started looking at vacancies as it relates to to substitutes, but then also just vacancies in general and sort of what's going on there. And truthfully, I was a little bit surprised of how many vacancies last not just a few months, but last an entire school year. I mean, give us a a better understanding of how widespread the problem is. What I found is that 152 schools had at least one open special education teacher or regular education teacher position all year. So That means that never was that position filled. Now, grant you, in some schools, principals are shifting schedules so that maybe students don't feel it that often. You know, maybe maybe you can have a teacher covering two classes. I heard one um, parent tell me that her child didn't have a, a sixth grade teacher, but there was supposed to be two sixth grade teachers. And the one sixth grade teacher said, okay, I'm gonna take all the kids into my classes. So for a year, They had 57 kids in that class, which is astronomical. But you can understand that other teacher didn't want those kids to go without instruction for a year. I mean, that's a very nice thing that that she did. So I'm sure that schools are doing things to sort of make sure that the kids don't just sit idle for a year. But this is an issue that, that the situation could be much better for those students if they did have a teacher in that classroom. What did you hear from parents about the way these shortages impact their kids? When I started reaching out to different parent organizations and different community organizations, so many people were like, oh, yeah, 
I've heard that happening. Oh, yes, I know of a parent to talk to. And one of the women I talked to, her name was Viviana Sorano, and um, she was telling me that her daughter did not have a math teacher for sixth grade for many months. And during that time, she would just do worksheets and that she wasn't learning anything new, that the worksheets were just old material to go over. Then when she finally did get a teacher, you know, it took a lot of catching up because they didn't know the sixth grade material. So they had to kind of hurry and catch up sixth grade material and then go into seventh grade material the next year. Then the very next year, the school did not have a gym teacher. And what she said is like, my kids had free time they were happy they got to watch movies or do other things for a period but she sort of said that her daughter got a little chubby because she didn't do any exercise during the day which was what she had been used to doing so interestingly enough gym teachers are surprisingly hard to find and a lot of schools will go significant times without a gym teacher if they don't have one so i heard several situations of no gym teacher i also talked to a student who didn't have a Spanish teacher for an entire year. So he said that entire year, because he, he, there again, they were given worksheets. He learned how to count to 10, but that was all he learned in the whole year of Spanish. So so just situations like that all over the place. I, I want you to explain a little bit more about what you found at the intersection between the teacher shortage and race. Well, what you see is that this problem affects schools in that serve mostly black students, mostly low income students the most. And part of that is because where these schools are. So one thing about Chicago public schools is that we have about half of our teachers are are white and um, many of them live on maybe the north side and don't live close to schools on the south sides and the sides and that they're they're not seen as very attractive especially as they've lost a lot of funding and so you don't see those schools getting as many candidates applying and then you you wind up getting vacancies so you know i talked to some principals who are like well you know i'll post a position and maybe get three people applying and those three people are not good fits for my school um, or maybe no people applying. And so that becomes a big problem. If, if people don't want to go, you know, maybe drive to Roseland, maybe drive, drive to um, Austin, then you wind up with that that's where the teacher vacancies are, are the most. You focused your reporting on, on teachers and subs, but what about other staffing shortages in CPS? So there's a lot of other staffing shortages in C- CPS. You find a lot of paraprofessionals. Those are people who, who help out special education students, that there's a big vacancies there. You also find with nurses and social workers and counselors, you know, all the support people that help students, that there's that there's a lot of vacancies. And in fact, last year, I don't know if, if you guys would remember, but um, former Mayor Rahm Emanuel announced that he was going to hire 250 more social workers for schools. And while they did open those positions, it's taken them, you know, an entire year and they still haven't been able to fill all those social worker positions. And and now today you you just recently had Mayor Lori Lightfoot say that she's going to hire more nurses, more counsel, case managers and more social workers. But she said that's over five years. And one reason why it's going to take so long is because you got to go out and find those people. And there's just not a ton of people that are available Chicago Public Schools is having to look at how they can build the pipeline themselves to get those candidates for those schools. So building that pipeline is going to take a number of years. So what does that mean for students who are moving through CPS now? 
It's a big problem. And one thing that, that I did hear from especially um, special education advocates is that not having a teacher is not an excuse for a student not having education, which sort of sounds crazy, but it is incumbent on the school district to say, well, if there's no teacher in this classroom, what is going on with these students? Does the principal have to step in? Does the assistant principal have to step in? Does a dean of students have to step in? What needs to happen here to make sure that, that students are not missing out on instruction? And, you know, to some degree, I do think that, that that's done because, I, you know, a, a principal is not going to want kids to be sitting around not doing anything. But I don't think that it's being done in any formal way right now to say, you know, sort of hold principals feet to the fire and say, well, you have a vacancy. So, you know, what are you doing about that? And I, I think that, that that probably needs to be done because you just can't have kids go an entire year without without a teacher. I, I talked to um to one young woman at Gage Park High School and they didn't have a sophomore English teacher for a year. And she talked about how she did OK because she's a very focused student. But a lot of kids failed that class because they didn't know where to hand in papers. They were like assigned, randomly assigned homework, but then the next day there was nobody there to collect it, and so then kids stopped doing homework. So they wound up failing that class, and then the next year they were put in advanced placement English for some shocking reason, and then they failed that class too. And I mean, that can have long-term impacts on whether kids go to college or whether kids, their futures. And so I, I don't think that we can just leave that up to chance. That's WBEZ education reporter Sarah Karp. You can find her series on the teacher shortage in Chicago Public Schools at WBEZ.org. Sarah, thanks. Thank you. I didn't want to speak for black people. I wanted to speak to and to be among. It's us. That's Nobel laureate and Pulitzer Prize winning novelist Toni Morrison speaking in a recent documentary that chronicled her life and legacy. Morrison died Monday night at a hospital in the Bronx from complications of pneumonia. Her death was announced yesterday by her publisher, Alfred A. Knopf. She was 88. Photographer and filmmaker Timothy Greenfield Sanders pays tribute to the acclaimed novelist and Toni Morrison, the pieces I am. The film will play in select theaters in Chicago and Champaign later this month. Joining me now in studio to reflect on Morrison's life and works are Badia Ahad Lagardi, associate English professor at Loyola University, Chicago, and WBEZ race, class, and communities reporter Natalie Moore. Welcome to you both. Thank Good you. morning. So first, I just want to hear your reactions to Morrison. Morrison's death. And Professor Ligardi, I'll come to you first. To say that it was a gut punch is uh, no exaggeration. Uh, I woke up yesterday to a barrage of text messages informing me that Toni Morrison had passed away. And, you know, one of them said, you know, with everything going on in the world, we now have to live in a world without Toni Morrison. And I think that that really kind of captures um, the sadness and, and grief that I experienced personally, but I know of course, by even scrolling through the multitude of tributes <laughs> uh, about Morrison, that many people felt the same way. Natalie, what about you? Same. I come to work, log on my computer, and I'm just barrage with the alerts and the tweets. And I sat there and cried at my desk. It was an unexpected reaction that I had, but I didn't feel like I knew her. It wasn't like this, oh, that's my celebrity friend in my head, my, that author friend in my head. I was 
weeping, I think, for this country and, like Badia said, a world without her. Mm. You know, many people have been paying tribute to Morrison, uh, from writers and artists to celebrities, politicians, including uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Uh, Talk about the broad scope of Morrison's work. I mean, what what a legacy. Well, when you think about, you know, just the fact that she was so incredibly prolific. So she began her career as this editor at Random House, where she works with these amazing writers, Lucille Clifton, Toby K. Bambara, Angela Davis. And at the same time, she's producing these amazing works of fiction, right? So you have Bluest Eye, 1970, Sula, 74, Song of Solomon, 77. I mean, it's like one hit after after another. And when we think about just the scope of her work, I mean, Toni Morrison has written novels, literary criticism, essays, children's books, multiple times over in every decade since 1970. And so I think we can marvel just at the sheer volume of that, but to also know that there is not a weak text um, in that volume, I think that that is pretty remarkable. So she's one of those writers that I think you can't pin down to any particular literary moment or era, right? She's someone who is very much like a Langston Hughes, I think, who just kind of transcends generations and whose influence spans generations. So, um, yeah. Natalie, when were you first introduced to Morrison's writings? I would say around 11 or 12 years old, I used to have a credit card to the Crock and Brentano's bookstore. (laughs) High nerd alert. Um, In Evergreen Plaza. And I saw the book and it intrigued me. This, you know, the the description of a dark skinned black girl feeling like she wasn't beautiful and wanting blue eyes. The bluest eye you're talking about there. The the bluest eye. And I did not get it. (laughs) I, I mean, I I got the description, but the book was heavy, and I was too young to read it. I read it again in high school. I don't think I grasped it. (laughs) Then I read it again in college and think that I did, but I was never turned off by her because of that. She was a difficult writer to read sometimes. I felt intimidated by her, but Beloved is one of my all-time favorite novels when I think about works that stay with me. That's at the top of my list. Yeah, I, I, I had a very similar re- reaction to Beloved and I, I got to the end of the book and I just, I had the deep sense that there was a lot I didn't truly understand and yet it had mm-hmm. it had gone into the marrow of my bones and it just, it just sat there. It just sat there. Uh, Professor Lagarde, what about you? What was your first exposure to Morrison's writings? Well, like Natalie, I think my first exposure was Bluest Eye, just because you know you had the book with this little girl on the cover, and so for a girl who loves to read, you think that this is something that is going to be accessible to you. But uh, very similar to what what Natalie has said, <laughs> it was not. Um, but my mother was a voracious reader, and Toni Morrison was one of her favorite writers, and so those books were in our house. And um, you know, interestingly enough, I uh, read. Song of Solomon uh, when I was in high school. So I had a uh, really progressive and innovative English teacher my senior year, and I was preparing to go to college as an accounting major. 
And after that class and after having read Song of Solomon, I changed my course and decided to major in English. So to say that, you know, I am who I am and I do what I do is because of Toni Morrison. There's no, no exaggeration. Uh, she really did influence my, my choice to become a professor of African-American literature. And I know that that story, um, well, that's individual to me. I know that many people also made a very similar choice to kind of pursue uh, African-American literature as a profession because of their interaction with Morrison. And that, Jen, I have to mm-hmm. say that I think this is just particularly really hard for black women who are artists, creators, and writers. Mm-hmm. This is who's talking to each other over texts and tweets and checking in on each other and how she even talked about her work. Like, she didn't suffer fools yeah. either. Yeah. You know, she was like, this is it. I write about yeah. slavery. I'm unapologetically black, even before that was yes. a term. And I, I think that's just, you know, to kind of piggyback off of that for a moment, I think that that's something that, you know, is really, again, remarkable about Toni Morrison is that she has a firm place in the canon of American literature, which is no small feat. I mean, it is still to this day a very exclusive white male club. And, you know, I think about the quote by Serena Williams that was circulating um, about how the tennis world had to contend with she and her sister, not because that world was becoming more accepting, but because they were winning, right? And so... Toni Morrison basically is a force with which they had to contend, right? And even better, she, you know, earned her place uh, in that club, if you will, not by compromising, not by trying to assimilate, not trying to make the experiences or the lives or the voices of Black people more accessible to white audiences, so I think that that is um, something that is really important to note about Morrison. It also feels as if she impressed upon women like us the importance of, to, to borrow a phrase, lifting as we climb. Mm-hmm. That if you're in a position to open doors for people coming behind you, that it is in fact your responsibility. Yeah, and I think that that's why her role at Random House was so central, right? I mean, the way that she was able to kind of take on the works of those writers that I mentioned previously and really, I mean, she got them, you know? So it's not just that, you know, she was the editor, but she was also an important part of that circle of black feminists in the 1970s. And I think that that is no small thing. Um, But even though like Toni Morrison was a kind of leading voice in that way, I also think about the extent to which she has been a legacy, is part of a legacy as well. I mean, I think about Zora Neale Hurston as someone who certainly centers the lives of black women and who is unapologetic and who really was invested in narrating the stories of black people that you know, other folks thought weren't worth telling. That's Badia Ahad Lagardi, Associate English Professor at Loyola University Chicago and WBEZ's Natalie Moore. That's it for the morning shift. If you have a recommendation for something you think other listeners would like to see, hear, or eat around Chicagoland, leave us a voicemail at 888-915-9945. That's 888-915-9945. Make sure to include your name and your neighborhood, and we might just play your recommendation on the air. I'm Jen White. Thanks so much for listening, and let's talk again soon. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.